In just over a week, New Zealand's first professional radio astronomy telescope will be turned on. As Kim Griggs has been finding out, it's the start of what this country's astronomers hope is an exciting new era for the science of the stars in New Zealand. The sound of Jupiter. We can look at the night sky, but we can also listen. The sun, stars, galaxies, planets give off not just light waves, but also radio signals. While the light from the stars has bedazzled humans for centuries, the invisible universe began to be revealed only 75 years ago, when the first radio signals from the Milky Way galaxy were detected. New Zealand is perfectly placed for both optical and radio astronomy. The country's southerly location ensures a great view of the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. The skies are dark and generally unpolluted, and the sparsely populated country means New Zealand is radio quiet. And next month, New Zealand will tune into the universe with its first professional radio telescope. So we're driving down Satellite Road. How far down the road is the dish? Oh, just uh, 500 metres. Here's a telecom dish. And our dish, you cannot see it yet. Here it is. <laughs> that little one, staying on the hill. I'm just outside Walkworth on a pretty windy day and I'm standing underneath the dish of a 12 metre radio telescope, New Zealand's first professional radio telescope. With the installation of this telescope, New Zealand's radio astronomers will be able to measure what's going on in space and also study the movements of our own planet. And New Zealand also hopes to be part of Australia's bid to host a huge international science project, the Square Kilometre Array. If Australia and New Zealand win the right to host this project, this dish would be one small part of a giant array of radio telescopes stretching from the far side of Australia across the ditch to New Zealand. Thousands of these dishes would be dotted around Australia and some in New Zealand and would combine to make a radio telescope that is 50 times more sensitive than any present day instrument and that will enable astronomers to look back at the very birth of the universe. My guide around the construction site is Auckland University of Technology's Professor of Astronomy, Sergei Guliev. So we're standing right underneath the dish here, and what exactly is it going to do? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> this is the sound of the dish. <laughs> yes, um, we, we just assembled uh, the dish itself, and the next step would be to put the piedestal on the foundation, which is over there. And uh, when Piedestal is there, it's a um, 12-tons uh, cylinder um, of about uh, 7, 8 meters high. And then a big crane will come here up the hill and uh, carefully take this big dish and put it on top of the Piedestal. And then we fix it and it will be capable of rotating around uh, two axes and it will be a radio telescope. And it needs to be uh, this ideal sort of scoop, the ideal dish shape that we're all familiar with, because why? Uh, that's right. It should be ideal paraboloid, uh, uh, because only in this case it will be capable of reflecting the radio waves coming from the space towards just one point, which we call the focal point. So that's sort of in order to capture as much as you can, because these... 
uh, waves are very faint. Is that right? It's uh, in order to focus it into one small uh, small area. So everything we can collect from this big area, about 100 square meters, this is the area of this 12 meter dish, uh, will go to one little spot, and there it will be uh, amplified and then uh, sent to the receiver and amplified again and. Uh, um, then we use the digital technique and uh, digitize it and process uh, and so on. This dish will cost $1 million and is funded by AUT. It's one of just a handful of the 160 or so radio telescopes around the world that is in the Southern Hemisphere. So creation of one more station, radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, um, is uh, so enthusiastically met by international community. Everybody just applauds New Zealand that New Zealand is building this new radio telescope. This dish is eagerly anticipated in order to do what's called very long baseline interferometry. That's a technique that uses widely separated dishes to receive signals from distant celestial objects, objects that are so distant that to all intents and purposes they don't move. Pinpointing the positions of those celestial objects gives a reference framework from which to measure all sorts of things from movements in the Earth's crust to changing sea levels to the concentration of ozone in the atmosphere. Already the study of the radio sky has proved so much. It's confirmed the Big Bang, helped map our galaxy and confirmed the existence of dark matter and dark energy. The arrival of this dish gives new impetus to a push for New Zealand to be part of Australia's bid to host a huge international science project known as the Square Kilometre Array. Professor Brian Boyle, the director of the Australian Telescope National Facility, is heading Australia's bid. Well, the Square Kilometre Array, or SKA for short, is a next-generation radio telescope. It will be the largest radio telescope ever built. It will comprise some... 5,000 antennas, or separate dishes, each about 10 metres in diameter, spread over a continent in size, or even larger than a continent, uh, up to 5,000 kilometres uh, in radius. Uh, it will address fundamental problems in astronomy and physics, uh, questions that uh, in the 21st century we're really seeking the answers to, such as what is the nature of dark matter? What is the nature of dark energy? How did the first stars form in the cosmos? How did magnetic fields shape our universe? Uh, and perhaps even uh, answer one of the deepest mysteries of all, is there anybody out there? The project takes its name from the size of the area that will collect radio waves from space, signals so faint that since radio astronomy began, the energy of all the signals collected amounts to less energy than a snowflake hitting the ground. Actually, if you add up uh, the collecting area of all these uh, dishes or antennas put together, the actual total collecting area of the square kilometre array is, you've guessed it, one square kilometre. But it's not all in the one place. It's not just one giant dish uh, comprising of one square kilometre laid out in the ground. We couldn't build such a structure and support it. So it has to be divided up into separate antennas. Half of those antennas will actually be in quite a small location, uh, around about five kilometres by five kilometres, uh, but the rest of the antennas, as I said before, will be spread out over a continent uh, in scale, uh, in, a, in an enormous spiral pattern. The project will cost the international community at least four billion New Zealand dollars and will aim to study the farthest reaches of the universe.
but it's a bit like a, a form of uh, cosmic paleontology. You know, as we, we dig further and further out into the universe, we're digging further and further back into time. And just like a paleontologist takes a core sample of the Earth by digging down, so astronomers and cosmologists are taking their core sample of the universe. And from looking at the different strata of the different objects throughout time, we can piece together the history of evolution, not of life on Earth, but of course of the universe. Australia is up against Southern Africa for the Square Kilometre Array. Professor Boyle says Australia's bid would be enhanced if it were an Australasian bid. If you were able to put uh, radio dishes uh, in New Zealand, it would actually increase the maximum distance uh, that the telescope covers uh, to 5,000 kilometres. Now, this is important uh, because the the bigger the the, the distance between the centre of the telescope and the outermost stations, what we call the baseline of the telescope, the finer the detail you're able to see on the sky. So just within Australia, you're limited to 3,000 kilometres. If you move to New Zealand, with a 5,000 kilometre baseline, as we call it, it actually increases the amount of detail you can see by about 60%. So from an astronomy point of view, it's really terrific to have this opportunity to build up in New Zealand. I think also um, the most important thing about the SK in its in its build is the opportunity uh, to drive innovation in other areas. It's not just about radio astronomy. It's about building capability in information technology, it's about building capability in broadband connectivity. And I think the opportunity for Australia and New Zealand to work together on these issues, I think would place, if you like, an Australasian innovation sector in a very strong position. So far, the Prime Ministers of both New Zealand and Australia have made encouraging noises. New Zealand has decided that it will formally and publicly support and campaign for Australia's bid Uh, to host the world's largest radio telescope project. Uh, We see this as having possibilities and potential for New Zealand and for Australia that at this time uh, are probably almost beyond our imagination. What um, Prime Minister Clark has said is absolutely right. This is a massive project of global significance and for radio astronomy in our two countries. And uh, you've got to be in it to win it. Uh, this, is big, this is a big project with uh, multiple billions of dollars worth of investment. Uh, once constructed, this would be the largest radio telescope in the world, 50 times more powerful than any current radio telescope, a huge contribution to global radio astronomy, a huge contribution to the science in our respective countries, to innovation in our respective countries, And to be in it, not only do we have to put forward a credible scientific case, we also need to put together a coherent diplomatic strategy to secure it. If New Zealand does join a successful Australia bid, it won't be our first foray into international radio astronomy. In fact, 60 years ago, New Zealand was the site of one of the most important early radio astronomy experiments. Two Australian-based scientists, New Zealander Gordon Stanley and Englishman John Bolton, were for the first time able to pinpoint the source of radio signals accurately enough for their optical counterparts to be recognised, overlaying the visible universe with the invisible one. American radio astronomer Miller Goss is visiting New Zealand and Australia to research that history. The bottom line is that these observations were extremely successful. They allowed the identification of the radio waves with some very interesting objects in the universe. And I I think you would have to say that that the publication of these results that occurred uh, 
after they got back to Sydney uh, in August of 1948, they reduced the New Zealand data, and they published in early 1949 as one of the most important astrophysical papers of the 20th century. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That early interest in radio astronomy flared then faded, while radio astronomy in Australia continued from strength to strength. Australia famously has the 64-metre telescope at Parks in New South Wales that helped bring pictures of the moon landing to the world. In New Zealand, it's been optical astronomy, led by the University of Canterbury at New Zealand's only professional observatory at Mount John, that so far flourished. Mount John is smack in the middle of the Mackenzie Basin, the geographic heart of the South Island. From where I'm standing on the top of Mount John, I look down on the township of Tekapo. Lake Tekapo is spread out before me, and in the distance on all sides are snow-capped mountains. It's this location that makes Mount John a great place to study the night sky. The mountain ranges protect the basin from rain, and at night here it's very, very dark. Wait till the moon sets, but that but, won't but, be but, well, you forget, I think for a few hours. Live in a city, you know. Yes, you don't realise. You, know, you don't realise the stars are there. I'm the guest of University of Canterbury Professor of Astronomy John Hernshaw and an enthusiastic bunch of Canterbury alumni who are visiting Mount John for the weekend. Well, we've got four telescopes here now for our research programme. The largest one is actually belongs to Nagoya University in Japan, but it's operated in conjunction with University of Canterbury. And it's dedicated to one project called the MOA Project, which is a project which seeks to find planets orbiting other stars other than the Sun. What are some of the sort of recent things that Mount John has been involved in that, that perhaps the layperson might have heard about? Well, the biggest program is this MOA. MOA is an acronym, as it happens, Microlensing Observations in Astrophysics. And as I mentioned, we're trying to find planets orbiting other stars. And this is a very new area of research in astronomy, but a very topical one. And so far, seven planets have been discovered using this gravitational bending of light rays by a star with planets. And some um, this effect was predicted by Einstein, who thought it would never be actually observed, but the first observation was just four years ago, and in those four years, seven planets have been discovered by this technique, and MOA at Mount John has contributed to all seven discoveries. That's, that's really a very big thing. It's not just the skies that we can observe from New Zealand that fascinate our astronomers. Jenny Adams, an astroparticle physicist from the University of Canterbury, is part of an international team that uses the ice cap of Antarctica as a telescope. The team hunts for neutrinos, particles that are constantly streaming through everything and everyone. There's big explosions, black holes colliding, producing very high energy, but we don't really know what, what's producing some of the high-energy particles that we detect. We don't know how these things work, so we want to detect neutrinos coming out of these objects. Even without making the trek to Antarctica or Mount John, there are plenty of opportunities in New Zealand to stargaze. New Zealand has more active astronomical societies per head of population and a higher proportion of amateurs as members of the International Astronomical Union than any other country. So I'm about to visit Jenny McCormick, an amateur astronomer. But she's not just any amateur astronomer, she's got an observatory in her backyard. Come 
Hi, Jenny. Nice to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. Come on in. Aucklander Jenny McCormack is one of a network of amateurs dotted around the globe who work alongside professional astronomers searching out far distant new planets using a technique known as gravitational microlensing. In 2005, using the microlensing technique, Jenny McCormack was one of 33 astronomers to find a new planet, and along with another New Zealander, Grant Christie, was one of the first amateurs to find a planet since William Herschel discovered Uranus in 1781. She did it all on a 10-inch telescope in her backyard. And um, when you <laughs> zoom into this, you'll see that my data, and Grant's too, but I'm thinking of me here, was right on the very crucial points of, of the discovery. And seeing you know, my Farm Cove Observatory, New Zealand here, in amongst you know, Chile with one metres, two metres, Grant's 14, one metre, and so on, Australian... Um, it was pretty awesome, and seeing that light curve like that with, with the work, you know, that was hard work to get that data, and um, lots of, uh, yeah, long nights. And I had to work the next day. This, this all happened on a weekday as well, which made it even tougher, but it was just so exciting seeing that. It's not been all plain sailing for optical astronomy. Earlier this year, after nearly 70 years operation and 30 years of being the country's national observatory, the Carter Observatory in Wellington closed its doors to be redeveloped as an educational astronomy and space science centre, leaving New Zealand without a national observatory. The obvious successor to the National Observatory title, as pointed out in an independent report commissioned by the Ministry of Research, Science and Technology, is the University of Canterbury. The Bessel report suggested that for a modest annual budget of $780,000, Mount John could become the country's national observatory. So far, officialdom has been slow to act on the Bessel Report's recommendations, but New Zealand's University of Canterbury astronomers are leading the way by establishing a national institute named after Beatrice Tinsley, a pioneering New Zealand astrophysicist. The, the National Institute is, is really just to group together all those people who are involved in, in teaching and research and outreach in, in astronomy in New Zealand. I mean, they're in various disparate places. They're small, I mean, they're excellent. We have good, fantastic groups all over the country, but they aren't coordinated in any way, and this is a way of actually grouping them together. And, in fact, grouping them together under um, an umbrella of, of possibly one of New Zealand's best-kept secrets as, as a... Uh, um, as an astronomer, which was Beatrice Tinsley. And so it's actually going to be called the Beatrice Tinsley Institute uh, for New Zealand Astronomy and Astrophysics. And apart from sort of grouping everyone together, I mean, why do we need such an institute? I mean, it, 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 the thing is that the, the fact with astronomy, it's sort of one of these sort of multidisciplinary things that you need to group together, not just the, the astronomers and the technologists, but you need to sort of group together um, the astronomers across the spectrum um, and by spectrum I mean uh, a bit like the colours of the rainbow but uh, the spectrum of the electromagnetic wavelengths that we observe objects in the sky so it's, it's not only what maybe many people think about astronomy which is optical astronomy it's also uh, radio astronomy or ultraviolet astronomy or uh, infrared astronomy it's all those things and so being able to group them together some people who have interests in them, um, in different ones, want to work at different wavelengths. It actually brings them together and makes them uh, a more consolidated uh, group. And it's hoped the Institute would also include the National Observatory at the University of Canterbury, 
the institution where about half of New Zealand's professional astronomers work. The Bessel Report talks about a national observatory and how New Zealand needs one and recommends it's hosted at Canterbury, but we want to call that institute the Beatrice Tinsley Institute. And we want, having formed it, we want... We would like the government to recognise it as the National Institute. So I'm hoping that um, the Minister of Science will grasp hold of this concept and recognise the Beatrice Tinsley Institute and hopefully give us some funding because a name is one thing. A modest amount of funding would allow us to really set it up properly. Though the Minister of Research, Science and Technology, Pete Hodson, is equivocal. That report said we didn't have to have one. You don't have to have a national observatory, and I'm sure many fully-fledged democracies don't have one. Um, but the Carter Observatory lost that status because the terminology means that you need to be doing this or that amount of original research and so on, and that was not being done through the Carter. It is being done through uh, the Mount John Observatory because of the expertise in Canterbury, and this expertise elsewhere as well. I mentioned AUT, there's also uh, astronomical expertise in Otago University and so on. Mr Hodson suggests a boost for funding from the Marsden Fund, a public fund for research that doesn't necessarily have an immediate application, could help the overall level of funding for astronomy research. But he doesn't see astronomy as ever being anything other than a minor league science in New Zealand. As for the square kilometre array, Mr Hodson says it's too early to tell what the decision will be. The answer goes, if it's a direct scientific benefit, it scores low. If it's a, a benefit that is good for us in terms of being a good global citizen, it scores well. And if there's a question about indirect economic benefits, the, the answer at the moment is, don't yet know. The National Party's spokesperson on science, Dr Paul Hutchison, says a national government would, in principle, support New Zealand's involvement with the Square Kilometre Array. This was discussed in caucus back in December 2006, and at the time I put out a release saying that this was a terrific opportunity. We can come in on the back of Australia if they get it awarded. It uh, offers vast potential promise to New Zealand, promise and opportunities. The next stage of the process is for both contenders to prove themselves by developing smaller versions of the square kilometre array before a final decision on the location is made in 2011 or 2012. New Zealand would have to invest $7 million in four radio telescopes to be a starter in the down-under bid for the square kilometre array. Proponents of radio astronomy argue the investment would be small change in order for New Zealand to become a player in one of the biggest science projects in the 21st century. Professor Brian Boyle. I think New Zealand's overall investment will, of course, ultimately uh, be, be relatively modest on the scale of other countries, all the other major countries involved, and that, of course, includes the US, uh, the European nations, who will provide the, the bulk of the uh, the funding for the SKA. Uh, but nevertheless, I think... Uh, uh, a country with a with a smaller economy uh, can still make uh, take significant advantages from being involved in what is a global collaboration uh, because after all there is significant leverage into if you like global uh, intellectual property uh, from the perspective of, of a smaller country and the university of canterbury's john hernshaw points out that such an investment would also boost new zealand's computing capacity if new zealand can join the ska projects then um 
will be an amazing boost for supercomputing for really broadband communications because the signals collected in New Zealand would have to go to Australia and all the different sites in Australia, would, the signals have to be combined and analysed in real time, which means as it happens. So you need faster fibre optics communications than anyone has ever dreamed of in Australasia in the past. Next year is the International Year of Astronomy. New Zealand astronomers are hoping that it will also be their year. Yeah, yeah, you know, we human beings have curiosity. And this is about this fundamental character of our science. We look at the sky, we look at the marvels of the sky, we uh, look at the sky with all this uh, awe and amazement, and we immediately ask questions. Uh, how does it work? When it was uh, created and how it happened? And what does it mean? Are we alone? And all these questions we ask, every human being asks. Wow, craters. Yeah. So much. And uh, oh. a little history of Mount John. That program was written and presented by Kim Greggs. Executive production by Philippa Tolley.